been inserted into a bottle and tossed into the ocean rather than sent by post, for by the time John received it, the professor was already dead. For perhaps the hundredth time, John took the note out of his pocket. My dear John, please make all haste to London. There is much, too much, I'm afraid, that should have been explained to you well before now. I only pray that this letter finds you well enough to travel— and that you will bear me no ill-will for what is to come. I do not know if you are ready, and that is my own burden to bear, but I believe you are able, and mayhap that is enough. I hope it is. Professor Sigurdsson The letter had been dated a week earlier, the 9th of March, 1917, and had reached him at the hospital in Great Hayward the day before. John cabled a reply to his mentor, requested a temporary leave, dispatched a note to his wife of less than a year at their home in Oxford, explaining that he would be absent for perhaps several days, and immediately arranged passage to London. It was the messenger who delivered the cable who found that a murder had occurred and notified the police. John knew without asking that the officer waiting at the platform in London was there to speak with him, and why. The train from Staffordshire had run late, but this was not unexpected, nor was it any longer even an inconvenience. It was simply one of the erosions of normality that came with a constant state of war. John had been on leave from the 2nd Battalion for several months now, since before the holidays. To the doctors he had pyrexia. It was trench fever to the enlisted men. In simpler parlance, His body had grown weary of the war and manifested its protest with a general weakness of the limbs and a constant fever. On the train, John fell immediately asleep, and his fever coalesced into a dream of a mountain of fire spewing hot ash and lava into the trenches of the French countryside, consuming his comrades as they held fast against the German offensive. John watched in horror as those who fled the trenches were cut down by gunfire. Those who remained, crouched in fear, were swallowed up, the sons of England become children of Pompeii as they died in flame and smoke. He awoke to the shrill whistle of the train, signalling their arrival at the station in London. He was flushed and sweating, and looked for all the world to the awaiting constable, as if he was complicit in the murder of the man he had come to see. John wiped his brow with a kerchief shouldered his backpack out of the luggage racks, and stepped off the train. His arrival, and his subsequent departure with the policeman, were noted by no less than four individuals, mingling invisibly within the crowds, exchanging places between the platform and the trains. Three of them were cloaked, and walked a bit awkwardly, due to the inverted joint in their lower legs that made them walk as if they were dogs, striding upright on two legs exactly as if they were dogs. The strange figures disappeared into the throng to report what they had seen to their master. The fourth, which had been sitting alongside John on the train, slipped out of the station and turned down the street taken minutes before by the constable and the young soldier from Staffordshire. I'm just saying that there are a number of uses for an English knight far superior to investigating a murder said the inspector in charge of the murder scene, a stout, affable fellow called Close. 
You can bet the killer, whoever he may be, is no treepsing about in this muck. No, he's home by now, having done his business for the day, warming his toes by the hearth and sipping a nice mulled brandy. Well, I have to be out here on the verge of catching my death. Close caught himself mid-complaint and gestured in apology. Not that talking with you lot is all that bad, mind you. Circumstances. It took John a few moments to realize that he was not the only one being interviewed that evening about the professor's murder. For the first time, he noticed the other two cuckoos, shivering, nodding at the questioning police, wondering how they'd come to be in this particular dreadful nest. Shaking hands, they introduced themselves. The younger one, called Jack, was straw-haired and fidgety. The older, Charles, was bespectacled and deficient. He was answering the constable's queries as if he were tallying...